Second Corinthians chapter one. And we're going to read beginning at verse eight. Of course, Second Corinthians being the book written by Paul to the Corinthians after having written that corrective epistle, First Corinthians, due to the varied and almost innumerable issues that the people were facing. So Second Corinthians is a bit of a reconciling uh, word, a confirming word, but also it's an instructive word to try to keep the minds of a people who had faltered and fell and had such problems where it needs to be focused. And one thing that he begins with <clears throat> here in the first chapter is perhaps an overriding consideration that would be kept in mind as he deals with the other subjects that unfold in this book. So I want us to read, beginning at verse 8, we're going to read about Paul's comments about how his own conduct amongst them, the nature of his preaching and so forth, and then he comes to the subject that he wants them to keep in mind. Verse 8. delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us ye also helping together by prayer for us that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons thanks may be given by many on our behalf for our rejoicing is this the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but with the grace of God have we had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you word. For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. As also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that ye might have a second benefit, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you be brought on my way toward Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use likeness? Or the things that I purpose, do I propose, purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay. But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. Now he which establisheth us with you is Christ, and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit into our hearts. 
Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. Not for that ye have dominion, that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. May the Lord bless his word to us for Jesus' sake. This morning I want us to think particularly on verse 20, a verse that we probably know well, maybe even have committed to memory. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. And I want us to think briefly on what I am calling when everything looks the opposite of what it should. When everything looks the opposite of what it should. Before we go further, let's just ask the Lord to meet with us. Father in heaven, now we pray that you will bless the word of God. We pray that you will let it be used by the Spirit as that sword that divides the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. Lord, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Lord, bless us by letting us hear your voice in the word. Let us realize something from thyself that causes us to go from this place rejoicing in Christ Jesus. To this end, I pray that you'll help me as your servant. Pray that you'll guide me by the Spirit. And Lord, cover me with the blood of the Lord Jesus that I might be a vessel fit for the Master's use in this hour. Open the hearts and ears of those that are here before thy word as well we pray and minister to each heart for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now as I mentioned a moment ago, the words that are being taken as our text are enormously important. They are important not only because they show the certainty and the surety of God's promises to us, but they display the very character of the one in whom we are to have all our faith. Again, let me say that these words speak to us about the certainty of the promises of God, but they also speak to us about the character of the one who offers those promises. These two truths we will consider in more depth in just a moment. However, let it stand in our minds that the truth that we come to today is a very foundational truth that is meant to guide us in all our thinking about our God, His work, and His will. Now because this truth is so much a rock for us, Paul uses this truth as his main point to a group of believers of whom he in recent times had to be very corrective. The Corinthians had not just a few debilitating issues, they were overrun with spiritual problems and failures. Paul had not to be only direct, but utterly firm with them in his dealing in the past. But now in this second epistle to these people, he wants to establish again in their minds how they found him to be as he brought the gospel that we read. Further, he wants them to realize that the promises of grace and salvation, which he spoke of, is founded in absolute, 
unchanging truth. So he speaks to the wavering Christians about that which does not waver. They wavered. All men waver. All men are as unstable as the waters. But not the promises of God. So he speaks to them about this. And to introduce this truth, Paul first speaks of his afflictions and trials in verses 8 to 11. He says that he was under the sentence of death and pressed out of measure. But then he affirms that this trying was solely because God wants faith to be seen in his servants. That is a tremendous point. He was pressed out of measure not just because of the powers against him or the fact that he was a sinner that was susceptible to these various afflictions. He notes particularly it was because the Lord was moving and working in him by his mercies to cause him to believe and to trust and have faith that these things were upon him. He needed great faith. The Lord then added great trials. And I say this is a paramount truth. This is something that you and I need to understand. Our God does not afflict. Our God does not allow trials to come. Or trials just happen to come without the Lord really being involved or knowing about it. And somehow those trials are meant for us to rise up in ourselves and bolster our character and somehow get the victory. No, that's not the way and the will and mind of God concerning trials. He wants us to be those who are driven to faith. So Paul speaks of faith. He's not talking here about saving faith, but enduring and abiding faith. Faith that God will do as he says. Faith in the ongoing care of God. And then he makes a monumental statement in verse 10. He says, Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. There's Paul's conclusion to trials. Our God has delivered. He's delivered us from the death that comes from sin. And he will continue to deliver. He is always to us a delivering God. Therefore, we trust in him. Paul goes on to discuss the character of his personal conduct in verses 19 to 14. Excuse me, 9 to 14. And then comments that he hopes to be with them again in verses 15 and 16. In verses 17 to 19, he lays before them the nature of his speech and preaching. He confirms the solid nature of the gospel that was preached. So he says in verse 19. And then offers the great truth that makes the gospel so sure. He establishes that all that was said in in line with the character of of God's promises are in him only, yea, and in him, amen. Now what does that mean? That's that's the basis, that's the bedrock foundation for what Paul is saying. This is the this is the point, I would say, that is not only the focal point for the first chapter of Second Corinthians, but may actually be for the entirety of the book. This verse, verse 20, this is foundational. Why? What does it mean? What's he saying? Well, I want us to consider that this morning. And I've got just three simple things I'm going to point out to you. But I'm going to discuss with you this 
underlying truth. That the promises of God are settled and call for faith in the character of God. God's promises are given to you to bring you to faith, not just in the promise, but in the character of God. So he offers these words, and these are significantly uh, ordered. They are particularly said, ordered by the Holy Spirit in just this way for us to understand the enormity of what Paul is saying. So I want us to consider then three simple things about these promises that he speaks of in verse 20. The first thing I want you to see from these words is that they are unchanging. They are unchanging. Very simply put, the promises of God, or, could we put it this way, everything that God says that he will do, are forever unchanging. The promises of God are forever unchanging. The technical word that theologians will want to use here is that they are immutable. They are unchangeable. They cannot mutate. They cannot take a different form. They cannot take a different meaning. They are immutable, which stresses that they are not only unchanging by the nature of what they are, but also that they cannot be changed. They two things there. They only they not only cannot change, but they cannot be changed. And this is tied directly to the fact that God himself is immutable and unchanging. So, if God does not change, all that proceeds from God is as he is. It cannot be otherwise. God does not change. I am the Lord, I change not, he says in Malachi 3. Therefore, all that proceeds from God cannot change either. Or to put this another way, perhaps in a little bit more simplistic terms for our minds, God does not waffle or waver in his promises. Men always waver. Men always waver. What they promise is always conditional or can be made to be conditional. But the promises of God are not yes and no. That's what Paul's saying. The promises of God are not yes and no, or maybe, could be, should be, or if, then, whatever, or if this plays through this way, then God's promises are never yes and no. They do not have no to them. They are only yes. God's promises are only yes. Paul is saying, for another way to put it, that they are settled. Psalm 119, verse 89, you know this verse. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. What God says, what God promises cannot change. It will not change. It is forever settled. It is there. It is in power. It is in force. It cannot be made to be something other than it is. There is no condition that you can foist upon it that makes it to be something different than what it is. With, again, with men, men's promises are, well, this is true so long as, or I will do this so long as, it is always liable to change. Not so with God. 
You say, well, how does this apply? I think this way, we tend to think that God's promises are sure so long as they are deserved. Oh, now there's a point. We think, we act, we by our fallen nature, every one of us will come to this conclusion. God's promises are good for me so long as they are deserved. If we fall or we falter, our sin acts as an agent that prevents the fullness of what God promises. My sin, sin, my sin steps up as a prosecutor. My sin steps up as, a, as one who, with loud voice, says, now you cannot think that you can claim this promise from God because look at what you are. Can you not remember all the times that you embraced me, that you allowed sin to be in your heart and in your mind and was outworked in your actions? Can you not remember all these things? You don't deserve to know any of the promises of God. God's promises are true. They're holy. They're pure. But they're something that those who are sinful cannot really expect to know the fullness of. I want you to think about this. If you're in McShane's reading schedule, you'd be right now reading about the life of David. The Lord, you will read probably in the next little bit, the Lord makes a covenant with David eventually. One that David says, who am I? <laughs> that the Lord would make a covenant like this with me. But the Lord makes a covenant with David that through his seed and with his seed, there would always be on the throne of Israel one of David's descendants. Now, again, who does that ultimately speak of? Well, we know that that speaks of the Lord Jesus eventually. But my question is this. I want you, in the context of what I just said, is our argument against the constancy and the unchanging nature of the promises of God. How many times did David fall? When you read through the, those chapters of 1st uh, and 2nd Samuel and you read into the Kings, how many times did David fall? In fact, we might even put it this way. How many times would you say that David mightily disqualified himself from the promises of God? Well, <laughs> I don't know if we can even number. But here's the point that I'm trying to make. The issue, the certainty, the constancy of the promises of God are, were not grounded on the actions of David. The promises of God to him was not based on what he did. David was not the rock upon which the promises rested. It was not on him. God didn't say, I promise you this, David, as long as this is true. The promises to David were unchanging in spite of what David did. Again, the Lord did not base his promise on the knowledge that David would surpass the threshold of faithfulness. You think about it this way. David, I have you on my faithfulness meter. And as long as you pass over uh, the, the mark to put you from the, well, you ever seen a battery meter? Uh, replace weak good. 
as long as you can get your needle over into the good category, David, then the, the promises that I've made to you, they'll, they'll stand. But if, if you fall into that yellow or, or you go worse than that, you fall into the red, nah, the promises aren't good for you. You and I act as if that's the truth. That's exactly how we approach the promises of God. When God says he will be, when God says he will do, when God says he will answer, when God says he will intervene, when God says he will add, all the different things that the Lord t- tells us as his people that he will do to us, you and I immediately take that promise and say, oh, it's a wonderful promise. It's a precious promise. In fact, maybe, maybe someday I'll be able to write a song about that promise. And it's just wonderful, but... But, I don't know that I can take it. I don't know that I can really rest in it. I don't know that I can really allow it to grip my heart because after all, I am whatever. The Lord did not base his promise to David on the knowledge that David would surpass the threshold of faithfulness and so bestow his blessing on him for that reason. Christ was to come through David. That was the rock on which David's blessing rested. It didn't have anything to do with David. The Lord blessed David. The Lord loved David. David loved the Lord. Faltering all the way through his deathbed. But the promise was based on something outside of himself. Again, Your promise is based on something outside of yourself. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But think on this. Galatians chapter 3 verse 21 makes the same. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. That's just a little short question. But I want you to think about it. Is the law then against the promises of God? What does the law do? The law stands up and points out your sin. The law says you have failed here, and not only failed, you failed miserably. The law condemns. The law shows us what we are. As Paul says, I had not known sin except by the law. Why? Because the law comes and preaches to us. You're a sinner. You are one that is without any merit. But here's the question that Paul says. the law's condemnation of sin even righteously assessed, even truthfully presented, does the law's condemnation of what I am, when I see sin in me, does that prevent the promises of God? Paul says, again, is the law then against the promises of God? The answer, God forbid. Why? Why? The answer is, because the promises of God are not based on my being able to keep the law. It's not based on that. But here you and I, we stand up and we say things like, but God has to waver and extend and pull back. Extend the promise and pull it back. Extend it, pull it back. God has to do that because that's what we do. The promises of God are unchanging. They do not waffle. They do not waver. They do not get extended and pulled back. Infinite truth is always only infinitely true. When God says it, if it was true, it's always and can only but be true. 
So my point to you then is this. The call then here is for faith. Paul is stressing this to these people. He's stressing it to us. The call here is for faith. Faith that believes in the immutable character of God and therefore in the immutable character of his promises. His promises are only yes and in Christ, amen, meaning it is forever settled. So here's Paul's great stress to them. Faith is needed here. Faith is that which pleases God. Faith that holds and believes what is said, although everything seems pointed in the other direction. When everything looks like it is going in the opposite direction, what are you to do? What is it that you are to have happen in your mind and heart? The answer is you are to believe the Lord your God and you're to have faith in the Lord that even though you don't understand how the promises of God even can possibly apply to this situation, nevertheless it's true. I don't understand how this promise of God can in any way really be applied to what I'm facing because look at the way it's going. Nevertheless, you step back. But God is true. But God is faithful. I don't understand. But I have faith in my God. I will not look at the circumstance, but I will rather look to the character of my God. You know, Abraham had a promise concerning his heir, didn't he? That through his heir, through Isaac, his seed would be like the stars that were in the sky for multitude. That was a promise of God, wasn't it? But then you see the Lord telling Abraham, take Isaac and go up to the top of Mount Moriah and offer your son. Everything at that moment was in the opposite direction of what... Abraham would have concluded would have been right and expected from the hand of God with regard to the promise that he had received. It was going in the opposite direction. Why did the Lord, and you know the answer to this, why did the Lord take Abraham to the mount, atop of Mount Moriah? Well, first, it was a picture of the Lord Jesus. There's the largest thing. But we understand the Lord was allowing the faith of Abraham to be tested. Do you believe the promise of your God even when you see everything else going in the opposite direction? The promise of God is unchanging. You say, you're saying a lot about faith. Let me just say, look at the last phrase of this chapter. For by faith ye stand. Verse 24. There's the point. For by faith ye stand. For by faith you're able to go on with God. For by faith you're able to do what's right in this world. For by faith you're able to endure the things that are indeed fiery trials. By faith you're able to see how the Lord is faithful. Well, that brings me to my second point. The promises of God are unchanging. But the promises of God are also unforgettable. Now, I'm not talking about unforgettable in our mind because you and I know right off the bat that one thing that we are prone to do, one thing that probably is a a law with us, is that we forget what the Lord says to us. 
we forget what the Lord promises us. So, one of the key thoughts that we have in our hearts is a thought that racks our minds that God gave a promise, but somehow it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to me. We look at the promises of God and we conclude that, well, that was a promise that's now 2,000 years old and was meant for a different day, or that the circumstance that I face is wholly unique and the promise doesn't fit. And you and I oftentimes act as if we bring the promises of God back to before His face and have to remind Him of them so that He might allow the promise to stand for our situation. I want you to think with me for just a moment on one little word. When Paul says that the promises of God are yea and in him, amen. I want you to think with me for a second about that. When the word amen is used, it is a statement that the matter has been stamped and ratified by the Lord. In other words, he has declared it or decreed it. The effect of the promise is certain. Now this suggests in my mind a picture. And I'm going to say it's only a picture. Think with me if you will like this. That the promises of God because they are amen. They have been stamped and ratified as it were. That all of the promises of God are laid out before his eyes. He stretches them out right before him. They are the perpetual object of his gaze and his consideration. They are constant in their appearance before him so that he is unable to forget them in the smallest degree. Amen. They are yea and amen. They are stretched before him. He cannot see them without consideration. But he has also said these things shall be. So he cannot consider them without them being done. Now I say, it must be understood that this picture is only to emphasize a truth. This is not literal as far as we can tell. Nor is it possible for the infinite God to forget anything. This picture is simply for our weak minds to understand. I want you to think of it this way, though. That the promises of God are spread before him constantly. He cannot forget them, for he's ever gazing on them. He is always considering them. He has them in his mind at all times. And what God has declared to be his will and his expectation for his people, he cannot forget. And here's another thought. Nor can he allow it to stand for an occasion for which it doesn't apply. Huh? Yes. The promise cannot stand for an occasion. There is no such occasion for which the promises of God do not apply. Yea and amen. They are constantly known and constantly applicable. He will not let the promise fall to the ground. But, uh, again, let's argue a little bit. But what if the situation that I have, uh, and even though I believe the promise, what if, if the situation is such that I have misapplied the promise of God and it doesn't help me? So how can, then can you say that it's unforgettable before God or that he's always, there is no such occasion. 
in which every promise of God does not apply. How can you say that? Because I see things in my situation, in my circumstance, where it seems like I've claimed a promise and it didn't happen. Oh, let me stress this to you. No such thing can happen. We are required to have faith that the Lord will always apply his promise to, the, to our good and to his glory. And again, as I said a moment ago, we are called on to have faith. Faith that is willing to let the promise be outworked in whatever way God sees fit, whether it lines up with our understanding or not. I don't understand how this promise necessarily applies to me, but I know that it does. And I don't have anything that I'm going to do with that promise but believe. You see, nobody believes things like that. There is a particular verse in the book of Ruth that I am very fond of. Uh, and it's the statement that Naomi makes to Ruth after Ruth comes back with the grain, having asked Boaz to spread his skirt over her, in other words, uh, that he would be the redeemer. Ruth 3.18, the words of Naomi, Then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. This is what I'm, this capsulizes what I'm trying to say. You don't know, as Ruth did not know, how all this was going to work out. She didn't know how the promise that Boaz would make to her would actually play out. How can this be? How is it going to happen? I, I don't even know how it can apply to my situation. And Naomi says, now wait a minute, you just sit still. Because you know the character of the one who made the promise is the thing that you need to rest in. He will not rest until this thing is outworked. Now you don't know how it's going to be outworked. You don't know the good of it. You don't know the, the end of it. You don't know almost anything that has to do with it other than the fact that he has made a promise. Now you sit still and you look for him to do as he has said. There's the point to us. We look at the promises of God. Oh, it doesn't apply to me. No, you sit still. And remember the character of the one who made the promise. Even though you don't know how this promise applies to you, it does. The promises of God cannot be forgotten and cannot be misapplied, really. All of them speak of the character of God, at least. And that is the subject of our faith. To the glory of God by us, Paul says. Now I come to my last point, And this is how we sew it all together. This is how we know all that what we've just been saying is real and true. And the third point is this. The promises of God are united. Why can I say the things that I have been saying all along? That the promises are unchanging. That the promises are unforgettable. God does not allow them to be out of his mind. And there's not one of the promises of God that does not apply to our lives in every case. The reason is because of two small words in our text. In him. In him. All that I have been describing is true not of God's promises to us primarily. And when you sing that song, Standing on the Promises, you know, it's, it's, we tend to take it, Standing on God's Promises to me. No! Back up! 
back it up. God's promises are not given primarily to us, but they are given primarily to Christ. There's the point. In him are yea, and in him, amen. The recipient of the promises of God is Christ. They do not change. Do you listen to what I'm saying here? We said the promises are unchanging. Why? Because the promises of God to Jesus Christ do not change. They are not forgotten for him. They all, all of them, apply to him. And the covenant that God was pleased to give to him. All the promises of God apply to Jesus Christ in all ways and every occasion, so to speak. The statement that Paul makes is that the promises to us are of the same order and power as they were given to the Lord Jesus. They are in him, yes. God does not say no to the Lord Jesus. There is no waffling. There is no, well, so long as in God's promises to Christ. They are settled. They are sure. They are forever there. They are before the face of God. He has made these promises to Jesus Christ. He is always considering them. And so, since the promises to him are sure and unalterable, they are the same to us. They always apply to us because they always apply to Christ. Though maybe in a way that we do not clearly understand. I don't know how this promise really impacts me, but I'm going to trust it does, because the Lord says, it is in Christ that I have this promise. In Christ, there is something being done in me, for me, being done for Him, that I am the recipient of, or part of. I don't see it necessarily. I may not even see it till glory, but it's there. It's true. There's some things that are in Scripture that are very much like that give us the idea of what I'm trying to say we heard this week listening to one of the radio stations um, Christian radio stations we heard a a lecture um, about the nature of the Lord's dealing with the man born blind in John chapter 9 and the comment was made that the disciples being discerning fellows understood that the reason for the blindness of the young man was because of the curse of God on sin they understood that they were right but then they were wrong in the conclusion that they made subsequent to that because they asked the Lord who did sin then this man or his parents they understood here was a truth the curse of sin is the maladies that we see in our flesh. That's where the root of it is. So who sinned, him or his parents? And the Lord Jesus says, no, you don't understand. Neither one. Neither one. You don't understand what God is doing. You don't understand why this condition was upon this man. You don't understand why, why were his days ordained of God as were, you think about this how old was this well it says that he was adult age 
he was blind from his birth. You ask the question, why did the Lord allow him to go through such hard days all through his childhood, teenage years, into young adult years? Why did the Lord allow him to go through all of those things that you you and I would say, oh, that's such a shame. That's such a loss. The Lord Jesus looked at his disciples and said, this was not because of him or his parents, but for the glory of God. Why is it that you face your situation? Now, let me ask you this. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus? Then there's only one answer. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Our trials and all that concerns us are for the glory of God. We trust that by faith. That is the truth. Therefore, all the promises of God are relevant. And we, by faith, hold up the promises which are in Christ as yes only and amen only. And trust the Lord to outwork his will to his glory and our good. Paul is setting this major thought right at the start of this epistle to keep these folks in mind. You must have your mind set on the Lord, trusting in his character, who he is, and realize that all the promises of God, whether you understand them or see how they fit for your situation, they are all to you in Christ only, yea and amen. They have been made to him. He is the owner, if you will, of those promises. They become ours because we are wedded to Christ. All things that he has are ours in him. Therefore, the promises that he has received of the Father are undoubtedly and unchangeably coming to us. So Paul again stresses them. He preaches to them here the, the important point to grasp is faith. Faith is what is needed in the people of God. Not in the application of a promise to our minds, but faith in the character of God to do for Christ and through him for us what he has determined to be. You are to trust How many times do you see David then in the Psalms? This this same David who was, by all judgments, disqualified from the promises by his actions. But how many times do you see David saying, but I will trust, but I will trust and not be afraid. For I, I will trust, for the Lord is all these different things to me. Again, the rock, the foundation is not you or me. It is what God has done for Christ and what we will find Christ bringing to us because of our union with him. Well, may the Lord bless his word to us for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven now, we pray that you'll bless the word. We pray that you will use it. We pray that you will give us 
help for our hearts. Pray that you will let us know the ministry of the Spirit of God that helps us to have faith in what you say. And may we realize what you say is not just because you want us to understand, but because it reflects what you've already said to the Lord Jesus. Lord, for his sake now, help us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.